Hello, and welcome to the 25th episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H.net. And now, for stories of the week ending January 6th, 2017. Teen, teen, teen. What, what up, Sing fam? Welcome to our 25th episode. It's been 25 episodes already? It has. And uh, we're starting the year off right. We only did one last year in June. But yeah, we're back too, on the Too horse. much stuff going on. Too much stuff, man. Too much partying and uh, good times. No, I'm kidding. Just life happens. <laughs> too much work. <laughs> too much work, exactly. Hey, but, but we've been getting a lot of um, your emails and fan mail, and we like responding to those. So it's always good to hear from you guys, especially when we could share it out on our Twitter page and our Facebook page and YouTube. And uh, make sure you guys go and check out all those pages. We've got some videos up, and we're going to have some um, new ones coming out soon. Yeah, so, definitely check it out. We want to put new content out, and we want to get feedback from you guys. So whatever you would like to see more of, um, if you'd like to introduce some new stuff, uh, if you'd like to hear some new stuff, we're definitely receptive to that. So hit us up. Absolutely. So um, you want to get started with the stories of the week here? Let's jump right in. All right. So the first one um, is about Alexa. Have you heard about Alexa? I've heard about Alexa. That's that device that you can put in your house and connect to Amazon, right? Absolutely. You can talk to it and it tells you things like jokes and um, basically... Anything you want to know, it'll reach out to the internet and find it and give it to you in an audio version. But police were asking Alexa, did you witness a murder? Apparently, there was a drowning in a hot tub that was followed by a 140-gallon hose down that was recorded by the utility. Oh, no. That doesn't sound good. No. This happened in November 2015. Former Georgia police officer Victor Collins was found dead in a backyard hot tub at the Bentonville, Arkansas home of acquaintance James Andrew Bates. Bates claimed it was an accidental drowning when he contacted police at 9.30 in the morning, claiming he had gone to bed and left Collins and another man behind in the tub. But Bentonville police investigators determined that Collins had died after a fight while being strangled and held underwater, and that Bates was the only person at the scene at that time. So now investigators have reportedly served a search warrant to Amazon and hopes of getting testimony from a possible witness, the Amazon Echo, that was streaming music near the hot tub when they arrived at the scene. The police were immediately suspicious when they found out that the water of the hot tub was tinted red and that Collins had injuries suggesting a struggle, including cuts on an eyelid, a bloody nose, and swollen lips. There were signs of blood on the sides of the hot tub and on the patio around it and evidence that the tub and the patio had been hosed down to remove the blood. A water meter 
record from the city's utility department showed that 140 gallons of water had been used between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. on the night of the incident. That's crazy. So there's a lot of facts coming together to piece this together. A report filed with the court on warrant served to Amazon for James Bates's echo data. As investors continue to gather evidence, as first reported by the information, the Bentonville Police Department requested a search warrant to obtain records from Amazon for anything the Echo might have recorded that night. Police obtained a search warrant for Bates' Amazon account information on December 4, 2015, and went back to Amazon again in January of 2016 with an extension of the warrant. According to a warrant return Affidavit filed by police, Amazon, quote, eventually complied with the warrants on February 8, 2016, but only supplied a portion of what was requested in both search warrants. Bates was charged with the murder in February of 2016, but the investigation continued. On June 28th, police obtained a separate search warrant for the Echo itself, as well as Bates' smartphone. The reason for the search of the Echo is fairly obvious. Based on some recent investigations by... ARS into the Alexa voice service and a review of Amazon's prototype Alexa client code. While it's highly unlikely that Amazon would have retained any data useful to the investigation, some audio may have been retained on the Echo itself. Echo and other devices that use Alexa monitor audio recorded by microphone for utterances when speech or some audio is detected. It's recorded to a binary audio file and sent in a JSON message back to the Alexa service. All of Alexa's voice recognition happens in the cloud, so audio may have been retained briefly by Amazon servers. But if nothing overwrote the audio buffer files before the device was seized, it would be more likely that the audio files from the night of the incident could be recovered from the Echo itself intact. It may also be possible uh, to forensically recover the audio data if the files were just deleted from the local file system. So in response to a call from ARS, Bentonville Police Department Media Relations Officer Gene Page sent the following statement in, and it reads, Due to the recent request for information regarding the case number, the Bentonville Police Department announces that it will not be able to address questions prior to the trial. As the investigating agency of the case, the Bentonville Police Department formally directs all inquiries regarding legal issues of this particular case to the Benton County Prosecuting Attorney, Mr. Nathan Smith. Thank you for your continued cooperation and assisting us with providing public information. Amazon did not respond to requests for details on its response to the case or to questions on how and for how long Echo stores audio. ARS will update this story as more information becomes available. In the meantime, it may behoove you to watch what you say around your Echo. So that's very interesting, the fact that, you know, we have wearables, we have things in our home now that are connected to the Internet of Things, uh, or are connected to the Internet, right? That comprises the Internet of Things. Um, that's that's crazy, the fact that you have to watch out um, with what you have in your home. If you're doing nothing wrong, right, it's no problem, but... In this case, there was a crime that was committed, so therefore, um, the authorities said, okay, we have an Alexa here, maybe we can kind of exhaust that as a possible um, evidence, you know, uh, having possible recordings or something like that on it. It's just crazy to think 
20 years ago, you wouldn't even think that this would be a possibility. <laughs> no, people would have laughed at you. Right. But now let's look at the wearables. I mean, with Fitbit, um, you have some of the Under Armour wearables, you have the Apple Watch, you have mm-hmm. some of the Samsung stuff, but it's only a matter of time before you don't need a smartphone. Everything is contained within your watch, something that you're wearing on your person at all times. And so, everything's connected and everything's either saving something, it knows what time it is, it knows where it is. Exactly. And in this case, it seems like they were only able to use that local data, um, which is good. But, well, not. it's good in the sense that they had it there and it could potentially lead to some clues um, to find out who, uh, you know, did the crime. But also, it's kind of crazy that Amazon, they don't store anything. Because if you think about that, that's a lot of data. But there again, it's like, you know, on your smartphone, how you have um, your phone will send, um, it's like, it's called some type of data. It's like um, maintenance, not maintenance data, but you know what I'm trying to say, like troubleshooting data or whatever. It's like a subset. Yeah, it's the the data and, and metrics of the metadata that's going on. As to uh, if there was an issue, how they would fix it, what was going on at that time. Right. So, if you would think like with the Alexa, it could have been the same thing where, you know, they're taking a subset of the conversations or the sounds that it hears uh, for further classification to find out, all right, was that an actual person? Did we... The utterances, they called it. Right, right, right. The utterances. Like, did we not take in what this person said correctly and how can we improve the experience of the Alexa? Because the only way that you can continually improve and integrate different things into that product line is to figure out, all right, what do we do wrong and how can we improve it? And in this case, the Alexa, that's a, you know, a device that you have installed there that you can talk to and have a conversation with, but you can also order things. You can also give it, you know, uh, ask what the weather is and things like that. So, it's pretty crazy seeing the day and age, you know, the different uh, technological advances that we've made, but kind of on the flip side, uh, how it's changed like the judicial process. And I know just uh, recently, as I think yesterday or the day before, um, there was a video of a little uh, kid who was probably one years old or under, and he was talking to Alexa, <clears throat> asking Alexa to to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, but the way that he said it, oh, yeah. it made um it made Alexa uh, start talking about porno titles or, or names like that. <laughs> and the parents, you know, had to had to shut it down real quick. But yeah, you gotta be real careful. I mean, if the if the if the guy was um, being drowned, it might have picked up, you know, him screaming bubbles or something because your phone right now, like you say, hey, Siri, and it'll pop up. Or like with the Google phones, you say, hey, Google, it's always listening. It's always on. So it could be recording something before or after, you know, you it's like, ask it's it. Like, it's like if question. you have a, a Nick that's in promiscuous mode, right? Right. It's always listening. It's always looking at what's happening. So, um, so yeah, it's pretty crazy. Cool. Well, it's a good story. Um, definitely, definitely something that kind of opened up my mind and kind of like the where we're at right now technologically. So, pretty cool stuff. So, um, I know we're going to get into this next door, and it just came out today. I thought it was something really cool. Um, let's let's tell them about it. Yeah. So it's about unsecure routers and also webcams. So this prompt 
prompted the feds to sue D-Link. Um, you may know D-Link. They're a Taiwan-based company that kind of makes um, tech, uh, you know, like hubs and, you know, different things that you can deploy. Typically, it's like lower dollar um, stuff. It's not like the, it's not like a net gear or, you know, higher level, but um, it, it gets the job done, but it also has a benefit of, you know, not being as costly as other networking style of products. But we're about to hear why, you know, that's not necessarily a good idea to buy something that's, you know, so cheap because there is a trade-off, right? So, uh, the Federal Trade Commission on Thursday sued the Taiwan-based D-Link uh, company in federal court. Uh, the FTC alleges that D-Link routers and webcams left thousands of consumers at risk to hacking attacks. So, ASUS lawsuit puts entire industry on notice over shoddy router security. Defendants have failed to take reasonable steps to protect their routers and IP cameras from widely known and reasonably foreseeable risks of unauthorized access, including by failing to protect against flaws, which the Open Web Application Security Project, or OWASP, has ranked among the most critical and widespread web app vulnerabilities since at least 2007, the FTC said in a complaint uh, that was filed in a San Francisco federal court. So the commission's move comes 11 months after the agency settled the settled with ASUS over its insecure routers that allowed attackers to remotely log into them and, depending on user configurations, change security settings or access files stored on connected devices. The government lodged similar allegations against D-Link. Defendants repeatedly have failed to take reasonable software testing and remediation measures to protect their routers and IP cameras against well-known and easily preventable software security flaws such as hard-coded user credentials and other backdoors and command injection flaws, which could allow remote attackers to gain control of consumer devices. So, defendant D-Link has failed to take reasonable steps to maintain the confidentiality of the private key that the defendant D-Link used to sign defendant software, including by failing to adequately restrict, monitor, and oversee handling of the key, resulting in the exposure of the private key on a public website for approximately six months. And, there's more, right? <laughs> defendants have failed to use there's a whole bunch of fails in this by the way but um, the defendants have failed to use free software available since at least 2008 to secure users mobile app login credentials and instead have stored those credentials in clear readable text on a user's mobile device yeah that's not good and not good at all so reports abound about D-Link and other products being compromised with botnets and other attacks now the company stands accused of unfair business practices and misrepresenting its security features. The security wants a federal judge to order D-Link to correct those alleged business practices, and D-Link failed to main, you know, obviously failed to maintain a whole bunch of uh, application security measures, um, and it, it was just a failure on a whole bunch of parts. And this kind of opens up the discussion of if you are a manufacturer of a product and you handle it end to end. That means you handle the hardware and you handle the software of that product. You have a huge responsibility right now to ensure that that product is secure. And we're seeing right now that, you know, the Federal Trade Commission is the one stepping up and saying, if basically you're responsible, this is how much you're going to pay. 
And if you don't want to pay it, you can't do business in the United States. Because ultimately, if you dodge the FTC, it eventually gets to the point where you cannot trade or sell um, in the United States your product. So that's where, you know, I think D-Link and Asus, Mm -hmm. uh, Asus is again, you know, they're in the same boat. They, you know, they, they don't sell the highest, you know, dollar product out there, but usually the consumer of that product has, in my opinion, not a very low expectation of security or privacy. (laughs) They don't understand or comprehend the issues at hand because it it does take somebody who, you know, is kind of spun up on security lingo, protecting confidentiality and integrity and, you know, self-signed certificates and things of that nature to understand what the risk is, right? And that coupled with a threat that's out there, which in this case is, uh, they said that botnets and other things uh, could be created. I don't know if they substantiated that claim, but, you know, there is a threat out there. The threat vector is attackers can take advantage of this and either, um, you know, use those hard-coded credentials in the firmware or what have you and get onto a network and enumerate a network and launch attacks or do botnets. Did the manufacturer at the beginning of this intend for this to happen? No. No, they've been doing it for a while. Exactly. It's because they weren't responsible. So, um, we'll see what happens here again. This is something that I'd say... 10 years ago wasn't necessarily um, an issue because a lot of people have been saying, all right, we're going to run out of IP. Well, did I say 10 years ago? More so like probably 15 years ago, I'd say this wouldn't be as much of an issue. Um, 10 years ago is when, you know, individuals were saying, all right, Internet of Things is coming. Um, It's on the horizon, uh, you know. And the big thing there wasn't security of the Internet of Things devices. It was the fact that we would exhaust all the IPv4 addresses. Yeah, that was the huge issue at the point. You know, so it wasn't necessarily the confidentiality and integrity. It was the availability of a resource, which was IP addressing um, and IP addresses that was at stake. So it's only now that people are kind of baking security into the development of a product, which... If you want to employ a group of, you know, security engineers and a security team that are coupled with developers to define the requirements and kind of go end to end and develop a secure product that now, not only do you just have to make and wash your hands of it, you have to also maintain it. So there's, um, there's, there's kind of that as well, where a lot of the manufacturers are like, wow, so I'm on the hook for what I would consider continuous monitoring or like continuous support or continuous integration of different things with this product that we're releasing. They're like, that's not what I signed up for. That is very expensive. We can't charge the low price for this product and put it out there because it's too much of a liability. So Nick, when do you think it's going to get to the point where manufacturers say it's too damn expensive for me to make, um, cause webcams were big back in the day for being cheap. Right. And that was something that you would plug into your computer. Now the webcams just have a damn IP address and they're sitting on the network. When do you think it's going to get to a point that manufacturers are going to say it's too expensive for me to be in the IoT game and I'm not going to develop any more devices? I think it's it's coming up, especially uh, with this case. I mean, why, why D-Link? Why not anyone else? You know, um, So this is one of the things I want to see a follow-on to is what were the complaints 
you know, where did they come from? Like how many were there? Because I'm sure there, there's some other things out there that have the same complaints, but was D-Link really that bad or the worst? Um, I, I just don't know. I mean, we got to see the facts, but based on what happens here, people might start running out of um, the manufacturing game, or you might have to go to a managed uh, service provider to get um, your cybersecurity. Okay. Uh, so what you're saying managed. is basically you'll have a whole bunch of vendors and you'll have a series. So it may even spawn off a whole nother side industry. Right. Well, not side industry, but you know, kind of a a different ecosystem in the IT game. And that would be managed security, managed um, security providers for IoT and, you know. Absolutely. Uh, for for Well, they're doing it for endpoints now, but an endpoint is an IoT device. So, exactly. you know, um, you could see it for uh, people in, in the corporate industry with their phones and um, their watches and things like that. So, you're going to see managed service providers start providing um, not only the cloud services and all the uh, backend services, but cybersecurity services. So you've got to have a, they've got to have a, have a staff that's, you know, 24 seven looking at the ones and zeros going in and out. So you're going to need um, cybersecurity professionals that actually know what attacks look like and, and what they're doing. So yeah, managed service providers that provide security. Uh, I think it would start off with, with cybersecurity. Uh, I said managed security provider, which I was probably thinking too far in the future. Right. right? But so managed service, service providers provider, for, yeah. Yeah, for, for security, um, for the security piece. And like you said, they're kind of not only looking at traffic, but, you know, they could provide uh, kind of a solution for if you want a secure SDLC, right? Um, within your company and you want to be able to integrate these security requirements as well as ensure that we, you know, adequately identify the risk and, you know, either mitigate the risk or, you know, we, we adequately account for it. Mm -hmm. Um, there's kind of like a whole bunch of things that could be spawned off of that. So, wow. Very, very, very cool. Um, kind of seeing what it's going to be in the future, but, We'll have to definitely see how this pans out. Um, now, my question is, so you have like a Verizon, you have a Comcast, you have mm -hmm. all of these different internet service providers. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, they have kind of found a way to bundle telephone, um, internet, Wi-Fi, all into one box that you mm -hmm. install at your house. And they have locked it down enough, right? Correct. So, we know that there's not any hard-coded credentials. There's nothing like that in there. Whereas, if I were to go out and buy a Doxis 3.0 um, modem, right, that converts uh, the coax to Ethernet, right? Mm -hmm. And that's my, that's my point of presence on the internet, right? right? Now, if I go buy that from, like, let's say a D-Link, I'm not throwing them under the bus, but because we just talked about them in the FTC um, piece, but uh, that's kind of why I'm bringing them up. But if I had something like that, then I'm kind of opening myself up. Even though I'm saving like $20 a month or whatever the case is, the risk is there. Somebody can take advantage of that box and now they can kind of get into your network and kind of look at things. 
um, especially, and do stuff that especially you if you do. don't know what you're doing, you just think you're saving some bucks and, and you're just hooking up this, this box and you, I'm, I'm not paying AT&T and Verizon, you know, the rental costs or whatever. Well, you've basically transferred the risk to yourself. So if yeah. you know what you're doing to secure it, that's, you know, well, good. If you don't stay with the company that's taking the risk on and that will advise you uh, to do an update or a firmware update to make sure it's secure as it could possibly be. So ultimately, the responsibility is upon the consumer. Absolutely. So that's it. You heard it from us first. Consumers <laughs> need to make more responsible decisions. And here's where well, the FTC is stepping in to save those consumers. Now, I wonder will this spark other regulation out there um, to kind of put within the within the the market of selling these devices that there has to be almost like not a surgeon's general warning, right? Mm -hmm. But there mm -hmm. has to be something because um, we have all of like 802, um, 11 AC, mm -hmm. right? BGN, right? So, we know all of those things from a protocol standpoint, what it can do, but nothing is, we know WPA, WEP, um, WPA2, wipe uh wps right there's a lot of things that from a security standpoint on wireless that they've done but there is really no rating for security on those those smaller devices that's interesting matt <laughs> imagine walking into the store and looking on a box and having a security rating you know from <laughs> i don't know a to f or or one to five or one to ten that'd be pretty cool <laughs> But then again, I mean, that would require somebody. I mean, if you look at NIST, right? NIST has done some great things with putting out like NIST 853, 837 with the risk management framework. Like from a federal standpoint, they've done some good things for, you know, providing good practices for cybersecurity and security in general. So it would be cool to see how they handle this depending upon what the judgment is of these cases. Because mm -hmm. if the judgment of these cases find that the defendants are guilty, um, they're obviously, you know, then Congress will say, all right, we need to start talking about this. So, we need to bring people in. We need to figure out, you know, get them to the Hill and kind of figure out and talk to them and see what the state of security is for this industry and then figure out if the federal government needs to intervene to develop new standards and part of that standard would be like a rating program. That'd be pretty cool. But I guess we'll just have to see what happens in the future. But Absolutely. it's pretty cool to think about it. Yeah. So, uh, cryptocurrency, right? Yeah, Bitcoin stuff. Bitcoin stuff. You got something about that? Yeah, Gemcoin. Gemcoin is a cryptocurrency that actually never existed. It was a scam all along. <laughs> There was a trial. The trial of a Southern California-based financial scam is now set to go to the penalty phase next Tuesday to determine how much the company and the scheme's architect, Steve Chen, should pay the Securities and Exchange Commission. Last month, a federal judge ruled that Chen's Gemcoin operation was fraudulent. Quote, the violation took place over years and involved elaborate schemes, U.S. District Court Judge R. Gary Klosner wrote in a summary judgment case against Chen. Defendant has shown no sign of recognition of wrongdoing and has offered no assurances against future violations. 
The SEC argued in court filings on December 21st of 2016 that the remaining issues should be determined by the judge and not a jury, and that said judge should find, quote, in favor of sizable penalties. Gemcoin advertised itself in ridiculous promotional videos as a purported cryptocurrency that was, quote, trusted as it was, quote, backed by Amber Mines. The offices of Gemcoin's parent company, Alliance Finance Group, and its subsidiary, United States Fine Investment Arts, were raided in October 2015 by federal and local authorities. Amazingly, the Amber Mines did actually exist, according to a report filed late last year by the court-appointed receiver. As the Pasadena Star News reported at the time, it appears the Amber Mines did exist, though their value was seemingly overstated, and there's no indication the Amber inside backed the cryptocurrency at all, according to Siemens' November report to the courts. Investigators found 300 acres of land in the Dominican Republic with a working mine purchased for $373,000 in the name of Stephen Chen's brother, Yan Chen, and a company run by Yan. The sale was never fully recorded, and the land is still titled in the name of the sellers. Quote, it appears the land has mines on it, which are deep. Mana machine-made holes and tunnels, which are operating, and amber is being extracted from the land, Seaman wrote. Uh, USFIA paid $13 million to Amin SRL, Yan Chen's company. Those funds paid for operating expenses and for the purchase of amber and other materials. Yan Chen's company was paying $2 per gram for amber, according to Seaman. It's unclear whether or where the purchased amber is today. The receiver found one peso in Amin SRL's bank account. In addition to the SEC's federal civil lawsuit, a group of local investors have also filed a similar suit in Los Angeles Superior Court, which remains pending. Wow. So it looks like somebody wanted to make um, a currency not, backed by <laughs> almost like, by, like by gold backed bonds. Yeah. Right? Yep. Wow. But he didn't have any gold and uh, <laughs> no amber either. He just had a peso. Poor amber. Nope. <laughs> so that's that's crazy. Well, I mean, if you want to create a currency like that, I you think know. Bitcoin's at the top one, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they I even, mean it, they finished the year out high too. So, yeah, they did. Um, and you know, I wish I would have jumped on that way back when. Right, you wanted to be a miner. <laughs> that would have been cool. Yeah, but um, but it it just I was like, nah, I won't do that. And then you know, it gets to a certain point where there's no real return. Because mm-hmm. um, you're using up so much electricity, and but there were people that created space and cooling. Yeah, I mean, you know. It, so if you have a data center, it might be worth it to like pay some bills. Yeah, it would be pretty cool. But I think at this point, though, um, they're at a point where you know it takes so long to generate uh, a Bitcoin itself, mm-hmm. and it's so much that it's. It's really not – if you had a server that was going to be on anyway and, you know, it's staying at that level, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But, you know, it's a whole another thing if you jumped on this craze at the beginning. You definitely could have created a business out of it. Um, and, you know, I think they even had it to where you could go online and buy 
a USB dongle that had all the software loaded on it. It was like a like a very light OS. And then you plugged it in and it was like, you know, ran on Linux obviously and it it was its own device that basically plugged in the USB hub and it would, you know, uh start to generate the cryptocurrency in the background and then, you know, it would it would do its thing. It took a long time cool. though, right? Yeah. At first, no. I mean, you could buy it and hook a lot of them puppies up and start cranking out some some money. Um, but now it just it's at the point where uh, it takes so long to generate a Bitcoin because of where they're at um, in the cryptocurrency with the amount of computation that has to happen to develop that um, that one Bitcoin per se that uh you know it just doesn't make financial sense for you to to continue to mine but you know it definitely is interesting that this guy tried to create his own currency back it by something that was tangible mm-hmm. and didn't have the tangible asset period and therefore got called out, called out on it but and only had a peso. I mean, that t- <laughs> that takes some balls right there to say, hey, yeah, I'm going to make this money. Oh, wait, yeah, you can't come after me. I have all this mining equipment and stuff. And when you actually do come after, oh, yeah, I have a peso. <laughs> you know, but so password leaks. We've heard about a lot of them. Um, we had a big one last year with Yahoo. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Netflix is trying to do things a little bit different. What are they trying to do? So... Did my account get actually get hacked? It's kind of hard to tell, even after Netflix's heads up. You can hardly throw a stone at a major internet company nowadays uh, without that stone's password and personally identifiable data uh, being hacked. Data breaches have become the norm. And uh, for average internet users, that means increased need for vigilance. So on Wednesday, uh, last Wednesday, an unexpected email alert from Netflix uh this was obviously from Ars Technica, so it's from their editor's um, purview. So, an email alert from Netflix made me wonder if the media streaming giant had become the latest victim of a giant data break-in. That wasn't the case. Instead, I found myself facing rather the opposite scenario, a tech company offering proactive support. But did Netflix's vigilant take on my account security tip over into the scare tactic territory? It was more like a heads up. I began to prep a dinner on Wednesday evening. I saw an email alert on my phone saying Netflix password reset required. The kind of notice that make any would make anyone toss their uh, bottles of uh, cumin and dill aside and rush to a computer. So once at my desk, I opened up the full email, which explained, Dear Sam, we have suspected a suspicious login to your Netflix account. Your Netflix account may have been compromised by a website or service not associated with Netflix. Just to be safe and prevent any further unauthorized access of your account, we've reset your password. As it turns out, my Netflix account password had not automatically been reset, and this alert email itself even told me exactly how to initiate a password reset of my own. So they confirmed that my password had not been changed by typing in Netflix.com or the browser and logging in as opposed to clicking anything in the email body. Confused, I opened the email source and poured through it looking for any signs of suspicious URLs or fraud. Nothing. It looked legit. I then checked both my device and viewing history, which Netflix's web interface makes it easy to do. I found no use since my last Netflix binge a little over two weeks ago. 
I watch some stand-up comedy through my Vizio. Um, it's pre-installed with the Netflix app, the last trace of verified activity. So, they put a copy of the email up there, but the incorrect part about the password being reset, the use of clickable links, and other slightly dubious information combined to make the email itself look a little bit like a phishing email in the author's opinion. So, a cursory Twitter search showed other users had recently been complaining to Netflix's customer service team about a similar issue. What's with the warning when my activity feed shows nothing? And Netflix had officially directed those users to the company's customer service live chat. They clicked through and was immediately connected to a rep. They asked them if other activity had been noticed on the account. It said, I don't see any streaming in your account in the past seven days, the rep Alberto wrote. What we can do to make you feel more safe is to send you a password reset email and also deactivate all devices which are now logged into the account. Well, I honestly would feel safer if Netflix didn't send out false alerts like this and uh, they had wrote in a response to the tech. I pressed for more information to see what triggered a suspicious sign-in notice and after putting them on hold for some time, Alberta returned with the um, explanation of, thank you for holding. I was checking on my end and confirmed that the system sometimes sends an email from info at mailer.netflix.com that alerts customers about possible unauthorized access and recommends that they change the password for their account. This doesn't mean that the account was compromised. It is more like a heads up and a recommendation to change the password to prevent that from happening. Netflix takes our customers' security very seriously. Keeping your data safe is among our top priorities. And while we can always say how an account was compromised, some common ways are uh, phishing emails or unsecure websites. If you click here, you will find out how to keep the account more secure. And so at first blush, they felt like the explanation didn't quite mesh with the alert. And was there a suspicious login? So basically what we're getting at, it's kind of like the same type of deal with the credit card companies. So with a credit card company, even though they're not going to send you an email, right? Well, they're not going to send you an email saying, hey, we're going to mail you a new card because we thought this may happen. They wait for activity to actually occur, right? But in this case, it looks like Netflix is looking at some heuristics data. They're, mm -hmm. they're pulling data from somewhere. And I actually kind of applaud Netflix for doing it, but... With the rollout of any system like this, you also have to be cognizant of the fact that users do different things, right? So, my devices, my activity, what I'm doing is completely different from what you do, Nick. Right. It's not going to be the same. Now, I don't know if Netflix had the ability... Because what they're not going to see, right? What a user is not going to see is... If I log into a Netflix account with a completely different geographically, you know, separated device, like let's say I'm in Florida and I log and now, you know, they see a login in Washington state, that's obviously a problem, right? Depending upon, you know, the technology that that part, I mean, they could be using a VPN that's going from Florida to Washington state. 
and it's just showing up as a Washington State IP address. Or you could be using Tor to watch Netflix. <laughs> you could be wa- you could be using Tor to watch Netflix, which I think is a little bit scary, right? If you're using Tor to watch Netflix, but to each his own. But like, it's a lot harder to set up Tor on like an iOS device that's not jailbroken, right? Right. right. Um, but you can set up a VPN relatively easily. Now, one would argue and say, if you're using a VPN once, you're probably using a VPN all the time, but that's mm-hmm. not always the case. So, for somebody that travels a lot, depending upon what metrics um, Netflix is using to determine this, uh, if it's like malicious activity or benign, right? it is pretty interesting. I wish that they would publish, Netflix would publish something to say, I understand if they publish it and say, this is how we determine if something is malicious or benign, then that gives... Uh, malicious actors or whoever are uh, bad guys or whatever you want to call them. It gives them the, the map. All right. Now, okay, I can figure out how to, you know, get around this because I know exactly how they look for it. But it would be pretty interesting to see how they determine this information. But the way that they went about doing it, I mean, I guarantee you it's not a PGP signed email. It's not anything special. This is an email that can be spoofed. So, that kind of puts Netflix um, kind of at a disadvantage because of the fact that they're not using the app. to. T- now, if they did this through the app and they said, hey, there may be some malicious activity, why don't you go ahead and change your password proactively right now? And it like prompted me through the app and it looked legit and it was in the Netflix app. I'd be like, oh, okay. Wow. On my next login, I'll go ahead and change the password. No problem. But the fact that they were doing it over email, I think especially with phishing and everything in in today's world mm-hmm. um, and, and what everything's looking like, that probably wasn't the best way for them to notify a user and have them change the password. So, you know, my question is, what what is the malicious stuff that they're trying to do? Are they trying to, to take content from um, the, no, I th- the I user's think they, box or, you know? You raise a good point. You raise a good point because of the fact that what besides content, right, does Netflix have that somebody who wants to get it would need, right? Because yeah. you, you already have um, ripped movies and all sorts of stuff. I guarantee you everything that's on Netflix, Netflix. Netflix. <laughs> on, <laughs> on Netflix is you can definitely get to on a TV mc box or xbmc box Mm -hmm. right it's just out there you can stream it you know Uh, not saying that's a good idea you shouldn't do it it's still you know violation of the digital millennium copyright act and you'll still get in trouble for it and you'll have to pay right right but the people that are probably conducting this activity are already doing that anyways so what are they going to do with a netflix login i guess I guess they would be able to harvest credentials because if you're using a Netflix login, you're probably using that. But they've already hacked Yahoo. They've already pulled the passwords from Yahoo, which was over a billion. So I don't know. I don't know what the I don't know what Netflix was aiming to solve. What problem were they aiming to solve by implementing this solution? I guess to keep the customer safe because of their um credit card information, their address. You know, because if you if you start piecing stuff together, you can build a, a really big puzzle. That's the only thing I can think. 
I don't know. I mean, maybe. Maybe. I mean, do you... Nowadays, the credit card information that's obfuscated from when you go into what what do I pay Netflix with, right? When I go into my payment options. Right. It typically just shows me the last four. And it right. doesn't even show the date of the credit card. Like, I, I haven't looked at Netflix per se, but I've looked in other apps. And it kind of obfuscates the first uh, 12, right? And then the last four are shown. So, you're right. I don't know what problem Netflix was aiming to solve by implementing this. <laughs> yeah, other that's than, the only question I had. Yeah, I mean, the cool thing about them, um, Netflix, is like, with I know they they use AWS um, and you know from a cloud security standpoint they had a lot of cool stuff where um, they had uh, what was it the Simeon Army um, where you could deploy it on AWS instances across like you know if you had an AWS um, you know a whole bunch of AWS instances on a zone or like a region. Mm-hmm. You'd be able to deploy it and be able to find out, all right, we were able to log in with this. We were able to, you know, do a denial of service on this or whatever. It was a whole bunch of cool stuff. And when I saw that, I took a step back and was like, wow, they're really trying to make sure that they're secure and also they're able to handle any potential disruptions, right? Any potential disruptive activity, they have it covered. But this, I think, is going a little bit above and beyond and it may not be right for the Netflix wheelhouse. This is more of something I see for like uh email service provider, right? Or something of that sort. But I don't know what Netflix was trying to do. I guess they were trying to be too cool for school and um users didn't like it. Obviously this guy didn't. He was like, what the heck? I just want to watch my <laughs> I, I just want to watch log in and, and watch some shows. Exactly. So <laughs> And you know you had mentioned before about um the, the the credit cards and everything and and you know one thing my bank does they don't even they don't send me an email or or call me they just they just send a new card out and it says your something's happened to your account here's your new card yeah they don't even um, waste time with anything <laughs> yeah my my credit card company they do it a little bit different so like let's say they see a uh, potential malicious activity, right? Um, there goes Siri. <laughs> I think it thought I said, hey, Siri. <laughs> uh, there it goes again. Nice. There hey, we Siri. Go. <laughs> so, anyways, um, my bad for having my phone near me while I'm recording. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're 100% correct. But with my credit card company, basically, if they see potential malicious activity they will send they will send me an email and it says we notice this activity and it has two buttons everything's okay or something's wrong and if i hit something's wrong automatically connects me to a customer service uh, rep and basically they say hey this is what we noticed you good no okay that, that wasn't you all right we're gonna next day you a card right now yeah that's awesome yep and, you know, it allows them to kick off the process for disputing the charges, right? Because as a credit card company, they're losing money. Those charges go through. They're not, dis- you know, they're they not have disputed. to pay them. Yeah. Exactly. So, on like, this would be good for 
like a, a credit card company, email service provider, something like that. But I just don't know the methodology that they're using to determine, you know, what method are they using to determine that as malicious activity. They have to be very careful with that because we brought up the VPN, um, you know, potential. But I'm sure there's other things out there, um, you know, other instances where it could trip these things. But just like any system that you deploy uh, to kind of like determine malicious activity, it has to be tuned, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, hopefully they've done their due diligence and did alpha, beta, you know, testing before they release it out. Um, but I don't know. Maybe they're they're kind of like figuring it out as they go. Who knows? But I guess you're going to be seeing a lot more emails if you're a Netflix subscriber because um, they're just trying to make uh, password security that much better. So maybe we should just all go through to uh, PKI <laughs> authentication. Absolutely. So I think we got time for one more story. All right, man. Attack of the routers, man. What's up with it? Yeah, so everyone knows or... Probably, if you don't know what DNS is, it stands for Domain Name Service, and it's basically what happens when you go to a website and put in an address. The address actually gets changed to a um, a numbering system, and we you can't remember, hey, go to my website at 144.32.2.1. Right. You just remember, hey, go to yahoo.com. So, uh, this article is in regards to home routers being under attack in an ongoing malvertisement blitz. DNS changer causes network computers to visit fraudulent domains. So, as you read these words, malicious ads on legitimate websites are targeting visitors with malware. But that malware doesn't infect their computers, researchers said. Instead, it causes unsecured routers connect to fraudulent domains. Using a technique known as steganography, the ads hide malicious code in images. So if you ever... Uh, ...certain size, and usually you can tell these things by... Um, if something's hidden, there'll be, a different, uh, there'll be a different size to the original picture. The hidden code then redirects targets to web pages, hosting DNS Changer, which is an exploit kit that infects routers running unpatched firmware or are secured with weak administrative passwords. So this could be part of D-Link stuff that we talked about earlier. Possible. Once a router is compromised, DNS Changer configures it to use an attacker-controlled domain name system server. This causes most computers on the network to visit fraudulent servers rather than the servers corresponding to their official domain. Patrick Wheeler, who is the director of threat intelligence for, for a security firm called Proofpoint, told ARS, These findings are significant because they demonstrate clearly that ubiquitous and often overlooked devices are being actively attacked, and once compromised, these devices can affect the security of every device on the network. Opening them up to further attacks, pop-ups, malvertising, etc. Thus, the potential footprint of this kind of attack is high, and the potential impact is, is significant. So there's lots of moving parts. The ads first check if a visitor's IP address is within a targeted range, a behavior that is typical of many malvertising campaigns, which aim to remain undetected for as long as possible. If the address isn't one the attackers want to target... They serve a decoy ad with no exploit code in it. 
In the event the IP address is one the attackers want to infect, they serve a fake ad that hides exploit code in the metadata of a PNG image. The code in turn causes the visitor to connect to a page hosting DNS changer, which once again checks the visitor's IP address to ensure it's within the targeted range. Once the check passes, the malicious site serves a second image concealed with the router exploit code. Um, Proofpoint said this attack is determined by the particular router model that is defected during the reconnaissance phase. A Proofpoint researcher who uses the moniker Caffeine <laughs> wrote in a blog post, if there is no known exploit, the attack will attempt to use default credentials. In the event there are no known exploits and no default passwords, the attack aborts. DNS Changer uses a set of real-time communication protocols known as Web RTC to send so-called STUN stun server requests used in VoIP communications. The exploit is ultimately able to funnel code through the Chrome browser for Windows and Android to reach the network router. The attack then compares the access router against 166 fingerprints of known vulnerable router firmware images. Proofpoint said it wasn't able to name all the vulnerable routers, but the partial list includes, guess which one? <laughs> which the, one? The D-Link DSL2740R, a Comtrend ADSL router, uh, which is CT5367, there's a Netgear one, WND-R3400, a Pirelli wireless router. I wonder I how fast... they just made tires. <laughs> I wonder how fast that one goes. <laughs> <laughs> as fast as a Ferrari. <laughs> and then there's a Netgear R6200. The malicious ads are delivered in waves lasting several days at a time through legitimate ad networks and displayed on the legitimate websites. Proofpoints Wheeler said there isn't enough data to know how many people have been exposed to the ads or how long the campaign has been running, but he said the attackers behind it have previously been responsible for malvertisements that hit more than 1 million people a day. The campaign was still active at the time this post was being prepared. Proofpoint didn't identify any of the ad networks or websites delivering or displaying the malicious ads. And ARS reported last week a similar malvertising campaign um, images with hidden code that double-check IP addresses also reach more than 1 million people a day. Uh, Proofpoint said the two campaigns uh, were not related. DNS servers translate domain names such as arstechnica.com into IP addresses, which I told you about earlier, such as 50.31.151.33, which computers need to find and access the site. By changing the router settings to use an attacker-controlled server, DNS Changer can cause most, if not all, connected computers to connect to imposter sites that look exactly like the real ones. So far, the malicious DNS server used by DNS Changer appears to be falsifying IP addresses to divert traffic from large ad agencies in favor of ad networks known as Fogzy, F-O-G-Z-Y, and Traffic Broker. But the server could be updated at any time to falsify lookups for gmail.com, bankofamerica.com, or any other site. In such a scenario, fortunately, HTTPS protections would flag the imposter. So the best defense against these attacks is to ensure routers are running the latest available firmware, 
and are protected with a long password that, that's generated randomly or through a technique um, known as diceware. Uh, disable remote administration. Changing uh, your default local IP address can also be helpful. And hardcoding a trusted DNS server into the operating system network can also be helpful. So that's how you get around this darn uh, DNS changer. <laughs> that's crazy. People want to make money, so I guess this is one of their ways of making money. Yeah, I mean, to generate this traffic, you know, that's crazy. And they can do it in sheer, you know, large numbers um, by, they probably said, hey, let's not attack the endpoints as far as the systems are concerned. It's kind of a little bit of a harder way. Let's go ahead and get in through the routers. So... Yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Yep. So, do we have any? Uh, do we have anything coming up for Infosec events? Um, let's see. This month, you've got ShmooCon up there. Yeah. Yep. So, um, January thirteenth through the fifteenth, Washington D.C. I'll be there. Um, should be a lot of fun. Bruce always puts on a a great conference. So uh, definitely going to be you guys, a lot of fun. If you guys spot Matt in his infosex sync shirt, um, uh, do a shout out to him. Go talk to him. Maybe he'll give you some um, some free swag. <laughs> for sure. Thanks for signing me up there, Nick. Now I have to carry around a bag full of stuff. <laughs> but it's all good. Yeah. If you uh, if you come up to me, definitely, um, definitely. You know, if you're a listener to the show and you like what you hear, it's great to see people in person and and uh, and stuff like that. So, well, I think, what are we, uh, do you hear that? That's that music again. Must oh, be man. time. It's, it's, it's time. All right. Well, uh, we'll see you guys next, next week. And uh, thanks for staying in, in sync, sync with, with InfoSexSync. Info